0: Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're gonna for our study this morning. I want to look at this last section of Galatians chapter four, which gives us an allegory showing that Sarai and Hagar represent two covenants, one of which gets cast out. But before we look at this, let's get some context here. Earlier in the book, Paul laid out the problem of the Galatian believers, which was the conspiracy to impose upon them Jewish customs. These Gentiles were coming to Christ, they are trusting Christ, and Judaism has come along and say, that's great that you trusted Christ, but that's not quite enough. See, there's things you also have to do. You've got to keep Jewish rights essential to salvation. And, and others were saying, well, no, you're saved by Christ alone, but you have to do this if you really want to grow. You've got to abide by these rules. And, and although this took place 2,000 years ago, this stuff's still going on in the church today. There's no Judaizers today, but there's still people who say, well, it's nice that you've trusted Christ, but you also have to do this or do that. So Paul defends his Gospel and his apostleship in the first two chapters of Galatians. His salvation and growth as a Christian were largely independent of men, and particularly the apostles in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, They wholeheartedly accepted Paul, his message, and his ministry, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul was willing to stand up against anyone and everyone to defend the truth of the gospel. And when men came from Judea to Galatia, teaching that God had neither set aside the Jewish nation nor the Jewish privilege, and unless the Gentiles became Jews, they couldn't be right with God, Paul responded to the Galatians that the only true children of Abraham were those who had faith in Christ. Notice what he says in 3.7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, the Jews would say, wait a minute, this is heritage, we're born in this line. No, Paul makes it very clear, it is faith. As a Christian, if you trusted Christ, you're a son of Abraham. And you inherit the promises. This one sentence here really destroys the entire dispensational, premillennial, postmillennial edifice. It's foundational to all three systems that Jewish privilege and a special Jewish future must be maintained on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which was exclusively, they would say, to the natural seed of Abraham. But Paul shows in chapter 3 and 4 that the seed of Abraham is Christ. And that they who are Christ and no one else are Abraham's seed and therefore heirs according to the promise. That this seed abolishes all distinction of birth and privilege. He says in 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Yeshua. There is no Jew or Greek. Now listen, when he wrote this, there were still Jews, there were still Greeks, there are still slaves, there were still free people, there were still women, and there were still men. So, he's not saying these things are done away. What he's saying, in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, Jew or Greek. Now, that would be a, an affront to the Jew. To say that Jew or Greek don't matter? Well, the Jews are the privileged people. It's their God. And so this, this is what he's saying here. When you come to Christ, none of these distinctions matter. You can be a slave and worship God. You can be a free man and worship God. You can be a woman. You can be a man, whatever. They all can worship God. Now in light of this verse, how can those who say they hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible say that the temple and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifice are to be restored to the millennial kingdom? You're going to go back to Jewish privilege? We're going backwards here? Because he said that doesn't matter. These things were established as a tutor to bring men to faith in Christ. Look what he says in 323. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, do we be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we're no longer Under a tutor. Christ has come, and they don't need to go back to that tutor. They don't need to go back to the shadows and types of the law. It's done. And the conclusion of the chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, is the charter of the New Testament church and the ground of her invincible claim to be the lawful successor of Abraham, the true Israel, the true circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the spirit, the inheritor of the promises and privilege. And hope of old covenant Israel. Hence, he says, if you belong to Christ by faith, you've trusted him, then you're Abraham's offspring, your heirs to the promise. This glorious sentence winds up the old covenant. It really abolishes the law, it abolishes the temple, circumcision, it terminates the mission of the Jewish nation. It ends the exclusive rights and privileges and provides a key to understanding the law, the writings, and the prophets. It's over. The law is going to be done away because in Christ, every believer, Jew, Gentile, you all are Abraham's offspring. And really, again, this sentence is a death blow to the dispensational heresy which has filled the church for years and aims to reimpose an age yet to come where those laws and those restrictions. And I always had a problem with that, even when I was a dispensationalist. I said, well, we're going to go back to a millennium worth sacrificing and back to a temple and back to rituals. And those all pointed to Christ. Christ came, and then we go back to that? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, in chapter 3 of Galatians, it was Paul's intent to show that being a child of God is related directly to the matter of believing in the same manner as did Abraham to whom the promises were initially given. Now with that said, what we want to look at here in in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And if you pick up commentators on this and what the scholars have to say, they they all say this is the most difficult passage in the book of Galatians. Paul's form of argument here, they say, is very Jewish. It's even rabbinical. Which means the first century reader would probably have no problems reading that. Alright, but we're not there. We're separated by a lot of distance and a lot of language and a lot of culture. But, so this can be difficult for a 21st century reader. But from my perspective, this passage is simple if you understand the preterist view of eschatology. Makes this passage really simple. The key to understanding this whole passage found in verse 21, tell me, you want to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? Paul's arguing with those who want to go back to Judaism and they want to take Yeshua with them. they believed. They've trusted Christ. But now they want to go back to the ceremonies and the rituals of Judaism. It, they want to form kind of a hybrid religion, part Jewish, part Christian. They intend to believe in Yeshua, but they want to live under the law as a means of pleasing God and winning His favor. And everything in this passage is aimed at these confused believers who are solely tempted to go back to the law of Moses. His point is, have you considered the implications of what you're about to do? The folks in Galatia had been toying with the law for far too long. The false teachers had been very persuasive. Their arguments had been convincing. They said, we the Jews, were the chosen people. We're of our father Abraham. The sign of the covenant people is the sign of circumcision. If you Gentiles want to be part of the people of God, then you got to submit yourself to circumcision. You've got to keep the law. And the people in Galatians wanted to do what was right. They wanted to be right with God. So they're moving towards law. So Paul comes in and tries to straighten this out. He challenges readers who claim to value the law so highly to consider what it taught. And he chooses his lesson from Genesis, a book in the law section of the Tanakh. And he used the term law to refer to two different things, to the Mosaic law, of course, but also to the whole Tanakh. All all that was written in there, he uses it in that way. And he says, do you not listen to the law? In other words, do you hear what the law says? He senses that he hasn't made his point yet, so he approaches the matter with another illustration from the Tanakh. Essentially, Paul says, alright, let's have a little Bible study here. Get your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis 16. And I want to tell you about the law, and I want to explain this to you. So he says, it is written, and he's quoting from Genesis 16, that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman one by a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. So Abraham had two sons, one of a bondwoman one of a free woman. Now, Paul fails to mention here that Abraham actually had eight sons. All right, He had six of them from a woman named Keturah, who he married after Sarai died. Uh, We see that in Genesis 25. But the birth of the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, provided Paul with the sermon material that he needed. So he's focusing on these two sons to teach a biblical lesson that these folks in Galatia needed to understand. And the history behind the story is found in the book of Genesis. It basically goes like this. Abraham was a prosperous businessman in Ur of the Chaldees when Yahweh appeared to him and told him to take his wife Sarai to leave that land and go to the land that God would later show him. Now, there's a lot of different views on Abraham. He was a pagan. He was this and that. But, you know, I don't know. He doesn't seem to be surprised when Yahweh shows up to him. He just right away just says, okay, I'll do that. He might have been a worshiper of Yahweh. Yahweh was ministering to these people for this time. But just prior to choosing Abraham, you know what happened, right? God disinherited the nations and the peoples because of their failure to worship Him, because of their sin, God just got to the point in Genesis 11 where he said, I had enough. I'm done with you people. And he left the nations and he started all over with Abraham. You know, basically we see this in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Now, if you go to Genesis 10, it's the table of nations. There are 70 nations listed there. Israel's not in them because they haven't been created yet. But he takes these nations and he says, I'm done with you, I'm finished with you, and he puts other gods, lesser gods, over these nations to rule them. It says, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The sons of God, Ben Elohim, are other gods, part of the divine council, and he puts these gods over these people Say, you don't want to worship me, then you can just have these gods. And then he says, but Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. So he divided the nations. He put these gods over them. He started again with Israel. And that's why all through the the Tanakh you see, I am your God, Israel. Yahweh, I'm your God. Those other gods are for the nations. He was Israel's God. And he promised to give Abraham descendants who would become a great nation. He says in Chapter 12, verse 2. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. And he's talking to one man, Abraham. Make your name great, and so shall you be a blessing. You know, and that's all well and good, except Abraham was 75. Sarai was 65. They had had no children. And in the course of time, they arrived in Cana, the land that God promised them. In Canaan. God repeated the promise by saying, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Ten years passed, still no children. Now, since the biological clock was obviously ticking away, Sarai suggests to Abraham Hey, I'm not doing too well having a kid here. How about you go, you marry Hagar, my Egyptian handmaid, and you have children with her. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abraham, listened to the voice of Sarai. Not a, good, not a good thing, Abraham. Not that it's always bad to listen to your wife, but there's sometimes, you know, it's not, in this instance, not a good thing to do. So Hagar becomes pregnant. She has a son named Ishmael. And Sarah concluded that since she's 75 years old, there's no way she's ever going to have a baby. And that's a perfectly reasonable, perfectly human conclusion. So she and Abraham basically decide to take matters into their own hands. You know, God promised it. It's not happening. Let's figure out a way to help him out. But of course, God really didn't need their help. And whenever we try to help God out, things usually get worse, not better. But that's exactly what happened. Genesis 16 says, "...the animosity arose between Sarai and Hagar." And that figures, you know, you got two women sharing a man. That never works out good, okay? It's just not going to work out right. So young Ishmael, he grows up in kind of an unhappy home situation. Fourteen years pass. Abraham's now 99. Sarah's 89. body is as good as dead, Paul says in Romans 4. Her womb seems to be shut tight. There seems to be no chance, none whatsoever, that she's ever going to have a child. But precisely at that point, Yahweh appears to him once more, and he says, Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. You know, God comes to you and tells you what you're going to do, and you're just like... You know, we want to criticize Abraham, but boy, I'll tell you, we're not too different ourselves. You know, we just have a hard time believing some of the things God tells us he's going to do. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, to make it clear that Ishmael was not the son of promise, God said to Abraham, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. My covenant's going to be with the son you're going to have in a year. So God revives the bodies of Abraham and Sarah and 12 months later, Isaac's born. The name Isaac means laughter. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Now that much of the biblical story I'm sure that you're familiar with, it's clear why Paul uses this example. The Jews revered Abraham. He was their spiritual father. As far as they were concerned, if you were a physical descendant of Abraham, you were in good standing with Yahweh. That's all you had to do was be born of that tribe, right? Be born of the nation Israel. As long as your father Abraham was somewhere in your family tree, that's all that really mattered to them. It was a matter of lineage, of heritage. Well, Paul is saying that's not right. God's family is made up of those who have a relationship with Him by faith in Yeshua the Christ It's a matter of faith. It has nothing to do with your family tree. Now, Paul puts it, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. And Isaac was born as a result of God's promise. So Ishmael is born a slave because his mother's a slave. Isaac is born free because his mother is a free woman. So Paul says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Now, the NIV puts it, was born in the ordinary way. Suggesting he was born the ordinary way people are normally born. And that's true, but uh, I think according to the flesh goes beyond that. It doesn't mean he was just, you know, conceived, carried, determined, born. I think Paul seems to mean more here. According to the flesh is meaning human efforts apart from God. Specifically, specifically, he was born according to a lack of faith on Abraham and Sarah's part as they tried to accomplish God's will by doing their own will. If we look at Paul's prior use of the word flesh in Galatians, we see him using flesh to refer to something that is totally human, without special grace attached. In Paul's use of the term flesh in Galatians, he doesn't simply mean possessive of a physical body. Rather, he means limited only to a physical body and the physical strength that it contains. Just human effort, basically. But their other son, Isaac, was not born in the ordinary way. He's born through the promise. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, he wasn't conceived, carried to term, and born the same way, you know, all children do. But it, this, God had promised this. God intervened in a situation where Sarah couldn't conceive and miraculously allowed her to conceive. The problem in Galatia, again, is this the Judaizers taught that you either had to be a Jew or act like a Jew in order to get saved. That meant being circumcised, keeping the outward trappings of the law of Moses. The Judaizers would say, who's your father? Because if you can trace Abraham back, you're good. But Paul's basically saying, here yeah, i got another question for you, who's your mother? Because you got to trace not only back your father, you've got to trace back your mother. The Jews knew that they were descendants of Abraham, of Sarah, and of Isaac, but Paul turned their most prized bragging right on its head and says, no, you're descendants of Hagar. That would have got him pretty upset. All right. He's saying, Those who take matters into their own hands by seeking to keep the law, by thinking they can inherit salvation by keeping the law, are children of the slave woman, not the free. He says, This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, before we go on, we need to say a few words about the whole idea of allegory here, because many tell us that this text sanctions what is called the allegorical method of interpretation. And if you subscribe to the allegorical method of interpretation, you read the Bible and you see the plain meaning there on the surface, but there's much more beyond that that's spiritual and mystical, and they take the text and they just create these fanciful things out of it, you know, basically making up whatever you want. Well, the Greek word here, allegoreo, is from alos, meaning another, and agora, meaning to speak. Hence, things which are spoken to give a different meaning from that which the words express. The allegorical method of interpretation views the literal meaning of the text as kind of elementary, elementary, secondary to the real spiritual interpretation. And those they would say those who are immature, those who are uninitiated into the deeper things are only to grasp the literal meaning. The primary problem with this allegor method is that the spiritual interpretation is highly subjective and often has little to do with the text itself. Just pulling stuff out. Well, this means to me, well, that doesn't matter what it means to you. What does it mean is what's important. That's what we've got to figure out. All right, the easiest way to sort this out is to start where Paul starts. He starts with two women and two sons. All of them are literal people who actually lived on the earth. We read the story in Genesis. You know, Hagar was there. Sarai was there. They're real people. Their stories told in Genesis. But what happens next is that Paul looks at these historical, real people, and he draws certain conclusions from them. He says, these women are two covenants. See, we don't need some allegorical method of interpretation because Paul says it right here. These women, Hagar and Sarah, they represent two covenants. Now, we wouldn't have got that from Genesis, but he's using them as an illustration. They represent two covenants of God. So Hagar represents the old covenant, and Sarah represents the new covenant. And I think that's clear to see from this text. The writer of Hebrews talks about these two covenants in chapter 8, he says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion. So, for a second, you know, if everything's okay with the first covenant, you don't try to replace it, right? For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, hang on to that for a second. He's making a covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. All right, It's very clearly the 12 tribes, but we'll come back to that. So Paul sees a huge difference here between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah represents grace. Hagar represents law. Sarah stands for trusting in God alone, where Hagar stands for trying to please God through our own efforts. Now, you know, please understand there's nothing wrong with trying to please God. We all should be trying to please God. But what I'm talking about here is you're trying to earn favor. You're trying to get in God's right grace by things that you do. You're in God's grace because of Christ. So Isaac would represent the way of faith versus the way of works, which would be Ishmael. So you have real people who nevertheless stand for or point to or represent certain spiritual truths. When you boil it down, Paul is saying that Sarah is in the line of faith and Hagar is in the line of works and all humanity is either in one line or the other. There's no third choice. Okay, You're either trust in God, or you're trying to earn favor by your works. Those who follow Hagar are the people who believe that religion or good works or self-effort will be enough to gain forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. Those who follow Sarah are the people who have rejected self-effort and have chosen to believe what God says, even if it seems to fly in the face of what everyone else says or does. Of these two covenants, Paul says, one proceeds from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now, the reference here to Mount Sinai points us back, giving us the Law of Moses. Okay, The Law of Moses was given at Sinai. The present Jerusalem is the Jerusalem of the first century that existed when Paul wrote this letter. That's the headquarters of Judaism, with its dependence on the law as a means of salvation. But since no one can be saved by law-keeping, the people who live in Jerusalem are enslaved to the law. They're trapped by the demands they can never meet. The slave woman, Hagar, produces a slave son, Ishmael, who stands for everyone who is enslaved by the tyranny of law-keeping, as a means of salvation. Remember, this is the problem in Galatia. They want to keep the law. They're they're being led back there, so he's trying to show them what the law is. Slavery comes from slavery and bondage from bondage. Now, in the Apostles' argument is the most startling reversal in the entire history of prophecy. Hagar, the Egyptian bondmaid, is identified with Jerusalem and Jewry. That's not a good thing. Sarah is identified with the true church, the new covenant, or, as we'll see, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, the allegory thus declares that earthly Israel, the twelve tribes, is to be regarded as Ishmael because they're in bondage, they are not free. The true church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, in which all distinctions of race, decree, and privilege are abolished, we already saw that, is the true Israel, to whom the promises made to Abraham apply. Hagar and Ishmael stand for the present Jerusalem. Now, you know, there's a tendency on people's part, they read this in the present Jerusalem, they're thinking something that's over there. This is present when Paul wrote it. Okay, we have to understand that this book, Galatians, is not written to us today, 21st century American Christians. It's written to the people in Galatia 2,000 years ago, so the present Jerusalem was the one standing at the time. Sarah and Isaac stand for the true Israel, the church, the Jerusalem which is from above. The covenant made with Abraham is the promise of the gospel. And from that promise, every Jew alive or everyone who ever will live is excluded except through faith in Christ. Now, Paul takes Hagar, and he makes her the spiritual equivalent of the law given to Moses at Sinai. Now, this would be really repugnant to the Jew, because all Jews viewed their descendants of Hagar and Ishmael as being essentially in the same category as Gentiles, who were viewed by the Jews as dogs or vermin. So any Jew would have been offended by the suggestion that he's a son of Hagar. Yet that's exactly what Paul stated. Yes, physically they descended from Sarah, but spiritually he's saying, apart from faith in Christ, they're descendants of Hagar, the slave woman. The true sons of Sarah, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now at the time of this writing, Israel was a slave nation. They were under the yoke of Rome. They weren't free. They perceived themselves as free to the extent that they were allowed to practice a limited form of Judaism, According to the law, Rome gave them a lot of freedoms, but they were still subject to the power of Rome. We'll see this in our study of John. Uh, you know, they, the Pharisees say, "We've never been in bondage to anyone." And if you know anything about Israel, you just have to laugh, okay? How about the Assyrians? How about the Babylonians? How about Media, Persia? You go on and on and on. You know, they were in bondage to everybody. We said never, been. and they were in bondage to Rome at that time. And they said we've never been in bondage to anybody. They're so blind they just don't get it. They weren't free. Not at all. Paul's saying as much as you might like to think Jerusalem is free, it's an illusion. And to think that we can save ourselves is also an illusion. Now by contrast, Sarah stands for the promise of God found in the Gospel, which reveals to us the good news that Yeshua died for our sins and He rose from the dead. The salvation He offers is free to anyone who will take it by faith. This salvation offers true and lasting freedom. The free woman woman produces free children. Freedom comes from freedom. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. Now he talked about the present Jerusalem, which now is, and now he's talking about another Jerusalem that is above. What exactly is this Jerusalem above? Who is our mother? You know, and there's people today, and they read the book of Revelation, and they read the statistic, all the you know, stats for the new Jerusalem coming down onto heaven, and it's just going to come down. It's just, you know, they don't get it. It's a picture of the church. All right? Who is this Jerusalem, some mother? Well, keep in mind that the comparison here is between what? Two covenants. Old covenant, the present Jerusalem, New covenant, the, the, above the heavenly Jerusalem. He who overcomes the revelation says, "I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go no out, go out no more from it." And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. So this new Jerusalem, he says above, Lazarus later in writing Revelation says it's going to come down out of heaven. And in 21.9, he says this, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me and said, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife, of the Lamb. Now we all know the bride, the bride of Christ is the wife. It's the church, and this angel is showing Lazarus the wife of the Lamb. With that in mind, notice the next verse, verse ten. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now what did he say he was going to show him? The wife. And what does he show him? The city. In short, Jerusalem above is the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, which is the new covenant, which is the city of God. The writer of Hebrews points this out when he makes the comparison of Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now the word "and" here after Mount Zion ought to be rendered "even." Or that this is the city of the living God. See, Mount Zion is the city of God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, notice the terms he uses. Mount Zion, he says city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, the church, and in verse 28 he calls it the kingdom, all of those refer to the redeemed in Christ. This is the body of Christ. This is the new covenant believers. These terms are all synonymous. He says she is our mother, this Jerusalem that's above. Now, that's why this verse in Galatians concludes that Sarah, who represents the covenant that corresponds to the kingdom of God, is the mother of all believers. It ties back to what we read earlier in Genesis 17-16, where God said to Sarah, she shall be a mother of nations, kings, people shall come from her. So Sarah equals Isaac, who equals the new covenant, which equals Jerusalem above, which equals the church. So we could say that the New Covenant and the Jerusalem above and the church, they're all synonyms. Just to help us understand it. The Jerusalem above represents the dwelling place of God. Sarah represents that city because she gave birth to Isaac, not by reliance on herself, but by an act of God from above in fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, spiritually speaking, she's the mother of all Christians of peoples whose lives are not merely the product of human resource, but of God's supernatural work in the heart. He goes on in Galatians 4, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. Why is that in all capitals? Alright, it's a quote. I like, that's what I like about the New American Standard. When they're quoting the old, they put it in all caps, so you know that's a quote. The best thing to do when you're reading that, you go back and read the quote, read it in context. He's citing here from Isaiah 51, I mean 54.1, to establish the relationship of Sarah to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, this prophecy assured Israel, during her barren time of the Babylonian captivity, that she will one day have more children than even before. The Jews took it as a prophecy not only of the restoration of Israel, but also of the time when multitudes of Gentiles would turn to God and claim Israel as their mother, becoming full members of the Jewish nation. And Paul sees the fulfillment of this prophecy in the birth and the growth of the church. He's taking this prophecy, he's quoting it to refer to the church. He applies this text from Isaiah to Sarah. And Hagar is followed. Sarah at first had no child, but when the promise of Isaac was fulfilled, her prosperity exceeded that of Hagar by multitudes. The church of the living God is even more overwhelming than number of those of Hagar. It's just growing. It's going to be a multitude. And he says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. You, brethren, it's referring here to believers, those who have trusted Christ. They're children of promise. They're not of works. He says this twice, he says it in verse 28, and he'll say it again in 31. We who believe in Yeshua are descendants of Abraham through Isaac. We are not the sons of Ishmael. We have believed God's promise by faith, and on that basis, we are God's children. We are children of the promise. God declares here that every believer is a child of promise, as was Isaac. That's because like Isaac, we become children of God, not as a result of any action of our own, but of God's work. He says in the next verse, But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Now the phrase according to the Spirit here is synonymous with children of promise in the previous verse. And it stands opposed to the phrase according to the flesh. It means that his birth was by special or miraculous agency. And that's what we've seen in the Gospel of John. The new birth is miraculous. It is a work of God. Paul says, as at that time. Now here he's referring to Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. And then he says, so it is now also. Referring to the present time. Not our present time, but their present time. And he's referring to the Jewish Persecution of Christians in the first century. See, Paul's enemies, the Christians' enemies, were not the pagan philosophers at Athens or the Romans, but the fanatical Jews. Paul rarely had problems with the Gentiles unless they were first stirred up by the Jews. During Paul's day, there was a bitter struggle between fleshly and spiritual Israel and as typified in Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. So he's saying, just as you see these two guys and the persecution that went on, he goes, so it is now also. Much of the New Testament writings were designed to encourage Christians to hold fast under persecution from the Jews. Because he says deliverance would come soon. Just as Abraham had two sons that existed side by side for a time in the same household, these two sons are typical of the two Israels of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 9.6. One born after the flesh, old covenant Israel, the physical people of God, and the other born after the Spirit, new covenant Israel, that existed side by side for a time 40 years this happened. We call it the transition period from the time of Pentecost to the time of Holocaust, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. You had a 40 year time Old covenant, new covenant existed together. The new covenant was growing, the old covenant was diminishing. The writer of Hebrews says that that covenant is fading, it's about to be done away. During this time of coexistence, the one born after the flesh persecuted the one born after the spirit. The Jews, the physical Jews, were persecuting the Christians because they were saying they're the people of God, not these Christians. Now, notice God's solution to the persecution. And this is beautiful. And this is where you understand the preterist view. This makes so much sense. But what does the Scripture say? How do we deal with this persecution? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So Paul touches in verse 29 about the persecuting envy of the Jews against the church to whom their privileges have been passed and likens it to the hatred of Ishmael against Isaac and concludes his argument by quoting against the Jews the very words originally spoken against Hagar and her son Ishmael. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. This refers now. who is Hagar? What does she represent? The Old Covenant, right? These are two covenants. Cast out the Old Covenant. That's what he's saying here. That's how we're going to settle this problem. It refers to the Old Covenant. It refers to earthly Israel. It refers to physical Jerusalem. Remember, these are all connected. And the dreadful judgment of these words should not be mistaken. All right, all through the New Testament, we see the prediction of the coming judgment against the Jews and the destruction of the temple and the ceasing of the sacrifices and the end of that Old Covenant era forever. So time came for Hagar and her son to go eighty seventy 70 would be that time. They would be removed from hindering the church any further. And the way they settled that was the Roman army came in and just absolutely destroyed Jerusalem, put an end to the sacrifices they have never sacrificed since, destroyed that temple, scattered the people. God was clearly saying, I'm done with this. That bondwoman, she's cast out. That old Jerusalem is done. And it was, it was at the time of the parousia of Christ. A parousia means presence or arrival. And it's tied not to an outward, physical, earthly appearance of some sort, but to the consummated coming or arrival of the new covenant. It was the fullness of the new covenant. His presence, therefore, is a covenantal presence in terms of a new and everlasting covenant that old is finished as clearly demonstrated in judgment. And all you know, all through the scripture it talks about coming in clouds. If you're familiar with the Tanakh, you know that a coming in a cloud judgment, I mean, coming in clouds is a judgment. And so he came in clouds, judgment against that old, wiped it out, it's finished. Adam Clark writes this cast out the bondwoman and her son. And what does this imply in the present case? Why, that the present Jerusalem, not now, but then and her children shall be cast out of the favor of God. Judaism is done. And shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. Shall not inherit the blessings promised to Abraham because they believed not in the promised seed. I think Clark's right on there. The abolition of the Old Covenant meant the abolition of physical Israel with all her privileges. And the emergence of the New Testament church is the rise of the Israel of God. Now, some people have a real problem with this. They they want to use pejorative terms. They'll say, you know, this is replacement theology. What it is, it's fulfillment theology. The New Testament writers make so clear that these promises were to the true seed of Abraham, who was Christ, and all who believe in Him. All who believe in Him. Jew and Gentile, without distinction, So while Ishmael and Isaac coexisted, neither one of them received the inheritance. And in order for Isaac to receive full inheritance, it was necessary to cast out Ishmael. So when Yahweh destroyed Israel in AD 70, the church received her inheritance at that time. All the blessings that had been promised. Paul is saying that earthly Jerusalem will never share in the promises made to Isaac. It was not for them. It never was for them. They are not the Israel of God. They were and always were the children of the bondwoman. He says in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now this he writes to the most Gentile of all churches, showing that the Gentile church has received the covenant, the glory, the birthright, the privilege, and the redemptive hope. You know, the consequences of this text are really far-reaching. They extend to every prophecy of the Tanakh to which the New Covenant is foretold. Every time the New Covenant is foretold, see, the church inherited the New Covenant. And this is a problem for dispensationalists. Because they say, well, that promise was made to Israel. Well, it's really clear the church inherited it, so what are you doing? So well, How do you deal with that? They're addressed to Israel and Judah. Well, we are the true Israel of God. The promise were to Abraham... Paul says in Galatians 3 very clearly, Abraham and his seed, singular, which was Christ. So the promise was to Abraham and to Christ. So how do you get out of the promise? You join to Christ by faith in Him. And if you're not joined to Him, then physical sin doesn't matter. That Israel and Judah is the New Testament church. The church is the lawful continuation of old covenant Israel And the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant and promises, they are all ours in Christ. And again, he makes this so clear in Galatians, you have to try to miss it. So how about you? Are you born of the flesh only or have you also been born of the Spirit? Do you still think there is something you can do to help God? That you can work out this deal with God, where He'll kind of overlook your 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 wrongs because you know you're working to overcome it. You know, and usually if you stop and ask people, you know, if you were to die right now and you went to heaven and God asked you why should I let you in, they'll say because I did this, because I. And as soon as they say that, you're like, well, that's the wrong answer. The only true answer is because Christ did this for me. But people today are so works-oriented, and they think they're going to earn favor with God by doing this or that, and they just think if our good works outweigh our bad works, we'll make it. Which, if you're really honest, you say you got no chance. Okay, Because good works probably don't outweigh your bad works all that often. If you think you can somehow merit salvation, you're a child of slavery, Paul's saying. You're still in chains. The Ishmaels of this world trust in themselves. The Isaacs of this world trust in God alone for their salvation. So the freedom, slavery, the spirit, flesh, antithesis which Paul has constructed in his allegory serves as a framework for the ethical instructions for the rest of this letter. He's going to go on now and instruct these people in the letter. The children of the free woman who were born of the power of the Spirit, he says you need to learn to walk in this Spirit. You need not to submit to the slavery and the law to gratify the desires of the flesh. You need to identify with the Spirit and learn to walk in the Spirit and trust the Spirit because you're Spirit born. And it's so tempting people to live after the flesh, to trust the flesh, to be like Abraham and Sarai and try to, i got to help God out. He's kind of in a jam here, people. And you know, theologically, you wouldn't really say that. But practically, how often do we do that? God, God needs some help here, you know, or maybe you figure He's got the power to do it, but you figure He doesn't have the wisdom to figure out the situation, you know. Because, like God, if I was you, I would do this. We do that so often. We just don't trust Him, and what He wants from His children is trust. Just trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He's in control. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all the details. You don't know any of them. Okay. You ever been in that situation where the worst thing in your life happened and you just figure my life is over, it's, just, it's horrible, it's all done? Remember Jacob being there? All these things are against me. Were they really? Not at all, man. <laughs> His son was now leading the nation, you know, and, he, and God sent him there to protect them and to feed them. But to him, it was the worst situation. We've been there, all of us have been there. God, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. I don't see how I'll overcome this. I might as well die right now. And later we look back and we think, wow, he was really teaching me some stuff. All he wants, people, what he wants from his children is trust him. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text. I thank you, Lord, that we have inherited the promises through faith in Christ. Lord, help us to see the truth that there's so much division in the church today over the place of Israel. Help us to see clearly that You have so clearly laid it out that the church are those who trust You. The true Israel of God are those who trust You and You alone. Thank You, Father, for Your grace, for Your patience with us. Amen.